You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. For context, we'll go back just to four. It's alright, it's cool. He's excited, he's got the spirit. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, right? Remember that. These creepers. These people are in, okay? They are in there. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation, all right? They were prophesied. They were written about. So they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, That Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, we went through all that. Here we are today at 7 and 8. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, there's about five, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay? So... We won't get to the blaspheme the glorious ones today, but the rest we're going to talk about. So these are the, these three judgments in Israel's history. Okay, Jude, we, we know from the beginning he was planning on writing about common, our common salvation. He's interrupted by the, the Spirit. He's inspired here because all spit, uh, Scripture is inspired. So he's interrupted to appeal to to the church to contend or fight for the faith, which is the gospel, right? That was, has been once for all delivered to the church who are the saints. You're a saint, okay? He's also made clear that certain people have crept in unnoticed with false teachings, false doctrines. They're perverting the grace of God, deny our only master, Jesus, And although Jude says they once fully knew, he still feels the need to recall their memory of the Exodus, these spiritual beings or angels who married the the human women we talked about last week, and now Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? So when seven starts off as just as, this is showing a close comparison then with what was spoken of right before. So just as, as a comparison with the angels in verse 6. So like the angels before them, they gave themselves over to immorality. 
like the angels before them, they too are going after strange flesh. All right. So before its destruction, then we're going to have to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah some. We'll be going into uh, main text. We'll be in Genesis uh, 18 for Sodom and Gomorrah. But so a review, get some context here. Before its destruction in Genesis 13, Sodom and Gomorrah is described by comparing it to the land, the land to the garden of the Lord. Okay, it's saying it was it was lush, um, green, and just uh, it was rich, fertile lands. They were fruitful with water. All right, these cities seem to benefit the blessing of God. But as we know, it would become desolate and the land will be good for nothing at all whatsoever. Um, you can look at it today. Nothing. Nothing's there. <laughs> There's these balls of, of sulfur and stuff like that. I think I've mentioned that. Didn't I talk about that last, last week or a week before? No. There's like these balls of like sulfur there on the ground. And usually when scientists study sulfur, it's only 40%. But these balls there, you cut them open and it's like 90% of sulfur. So, which is way more than what you can find anywhere else in the world. It's only found at the location of where Sodom and Gomorrah was, where fire and brimstone <laughs> rained down on them. So, we move then to Genesis 18. We're going to read the, uh, to read the account. If you want to look at it all in context, you'll know that's where it's at. Okay? See what happened to these cities. Okay? Now, right before this... We see the Lord and two angels appearing to Abraham here. So here's another sermon that you could just go on. There's three men with Abraham. He prepares meals for them and stuff, right? And they're eating. One is Jesus. Okay? He doesn't know it's Jesus, but one is Jesus. Jesus and two angels are with him. So you could talk about the Christ pre-incarnate all through the Old Testament, right? Angel of the Lord, when you see that, that's Jesus. Okay? So... Jesus and these angels are with Abraham. He's entertaining them. God has made his covenant with Abraham in chapter 17. And now these, these two here, or these three are in this form of men visiting him and going to eat. And saying, hey, uh, because they're divine messengers, they're, they're there visiting to tell Abraham, Abraham and Sarah that she will bear the child of promise. And she's laughing about it and all that, right? So... They're also on their way to deliver judgment to Sodom. So Genesis 18, 20 and 21, it says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And this is where Abraham then starts to plead with the Lord to have mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah because his nephew Lot and his family live in Sodom. So chapter 19 record the two angels who appear as men visiting the city. So 19, 1 and 2. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My Lord's Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. What? Huh? Yeah, they had a square. 
just like we do. <laughs> but he pressed them strongly, so they turned, turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of the last, uh, to the last man surrounded the house. Okay. Lot has this urgency. You can tell. He's saying, no, 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 don't stay in the town square. <laughs> He's got this urgency going on because he anticipates a threat against these two men. He's trying to get them off the street, okay? And we see a large number of people. It says all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Whether that's literal or not, I don't know. But it doesn't matter um, as much as what it's saying, which is it shows the general corruption of the city, okay? It was, it was far from having the righteous people uh, and persons in it that they keep pleading to look for, okay? So... I looked into history of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I, outside of the Bible, I looked into rabbinical writings. I looked at other historical writings, and it, it was—they're crazy. All right, they're crazy. This is nuts. Like, and I'm not even going to go into everything, but it, it's crazy. So they're entering the city. All right, come and stay. Don't go to the ta- town square to stay. If you made it through the city if you're passing by as a stranger like you're lucky Uh, i don't think that really normally happened okay they had ways of getting people torturing them killing them all this type of stuff typically it was men and they they did awful things to them so if you're going to go get a room at the town square you're not going to sleep because they're going to do something to where you're not going to be able to walk the next day. Now they can rape you and do all this stuff, okay? Um, you don't feed. You don't give water to strangers passing through. The women who are more compassionate, it seemed, caught doing this, they're, they're tortured and killed most of the time. This is, this is their, their laws, okay? This is what they're going by here, okay? So that, I'm not going to go any further into it, but I was just like, whoa, um, so today people say we've got a modern Sodom and Gomorrah going on here in our culture. It's like far from it. We're not there. <laughs> We're not there. Yet. I've said that for a long time, but it's, it's crazy. Okay. Now, go to 5 and 8. <clears throat> These men have surrounded his house. They called out to Lot. All right. Where are the men who, who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Okay, so (laughs) it should be apparent what's going on here. These men say, bring these two new guys out so we may know them. All right, this is not a meet and greet. It should be evident what it means when we go on to say how, what Lot says by offering his two daughters all right, to these men. They have not known any men. Okay, So for these men to want to know these men, all right, in other translations it says relations. All right, um, it refers to sexual intercourse. So within the, this context, these men are asking for the two men... Uh, to, to be brought out to them so they could uh, have homosexual relations with them against their will, too. So it's rape. All right, so Lot's offer seems crazy to us because I can't think of a sane father today who would do this, 
right? Take my daughters instead. But these cities, like I said, they're different. The culture is different. This is ancient. And hospitality towards these strangers was considered a moral imperative in biblical times. There was an honor code that he could not turn the strangers over to the men of Sodom. In a particular culture, daughters have been viewed in lesser terms than the male guests, right? Lot knew that offering his daughters was wrong, but he's considering the lesser uh, of two evils here. And that is heterosexual rape versus homosexual rape. So this is intense, but that's what he's considering here, okay? 9 and 11. These men say, stand back to Lot. Stand back, they said. This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot in. Okay, the, the angels reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And these angels, it says, they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Struck blind by angels, they wore themselves out trying to still find the door to get in. That's crazy. How great is their wickedness and their lust for them to still and try to find the door to get in after being struck blind supernaturally. Right? I mean, it's crazy. Okay. 1913. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Okay? This outcry against them is for their wickedness. God's intention is to destroy these places. The fiery judgment here is a literal one. All right? Fire and brimstone. But it also occurs in metaphorical uses throughout the Bible. We've looked at that before. But remember that when Lot was choosing Sodom as his place to live, it was described as like the garden of the Lord. Right? Go to it today. It's a picture of divine judgment. It's barren. It's desolate. And it's one of the most graphic examples of judgment that's in the Bible with overtones throughout the rest of the scripture. It always brings up Sodom, right? Now, the chief sin then of these cities was indulging in gross immorality. And the term carries a sense of giving into an urge or desire. The men of the city gave into a sinful uh, desire. And the result, Jude says, is they went after this strange flesh. Okay, so... Some want to say, and I used to say, and we can't, we can say Sodom's sin was not just homosexuality. However, um, it really still points more to that. <laughs> All right. The city was proud. They did not help the, the poor. But people will like to go to Ezekiel chapter 16 as an attempt to prove that Sodom's sin was just was not homosexuality, but they failed to look at the context, okay? Because they just proved that 16, 14, or 49. So we'll look at Ezekiel 16, 48 through 50. And if you want to turn there, I need a drink. Okay, it says... As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. 
She and her daughters had pride, ec- um, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Now, that verse is what they usually use. But the next verse says, They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Okay? Haughty, right? <laughs> like an older word, like that lady's haughty, like dresses all haughty or whatever. <laughs> Right? This kind of like, I remember my grandma talking about that, using that word. Okay. Haughty means to be high. It's speaking of pride. All right. And the abomination is a lawless action. It refers to something that is morally disgusting. Okay. So Jude is linking Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He's linking this to the angels in verse 6. Of his writing by saying likewise. So if it goes back to the angels, he's linking their sin to sexual sin and disobedience. And then that, that's in Genesis 6, which we saw last week. And it's saying that these being indulged in gross immorality as well. The same, these, these people. So the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did essentially the same thing as these angels or these beings did. They left their normal place. They indulged in gross immorality. And Jude also says that they went after strange flesh. All right. So that is a departure from the established order in nature to follow a practice that's contrary to nature. But I have to note that strange flesh is not a reference to homosexuality because it's not the pursuit of a different gender. Right. It's the pursuit of the same gender. But secondly, homosexual behavior involves the same human male flesh or female flesh, if you're female. It doesn't involve a different flesh as it would with these angels. And also, when the New Testament refers to the unnaturalness of homosexual acts, there's a different Greek phrase they use, which means contrary to nature, which is in Romans 1.26. So Jude is telling us that those in Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in gross immorality, which was homosexuality. And then some went after strange flesh, which was interspecies sexuality between angels and humans. So here again, we have it, just like we had last week, okay? So, uh, they went after strange flesh, okay? From what Jude says here, it would seem that the men of Sodom knew that these men, these two men visiting Lot, weren't just men, but heavenly messengers. So Jude says this entire episode of Sodom and Gomorrah took place so the world would have a vivid picture of what the Lord has planned for apostates. All right, so this destruction is in view of apostates' apostasy. All right, so... I, you have to go through this, right? I, don't, I didn't plan on doing a, a whole sermon on homosexuality. But if a preacher or a teacher ever wants to avoid something in Scripture, then going verse by verse, like we're doing, is not the best ideal for that person, right? You have to deal with it. So if I am to comment on this topic, <laughs> I will say the popularity and acceptance of it should not affect us. Because the only question we have to ask is what does the word of God teach us about this issue, right? Genesis 2, 23 and 24, it said, Then the man said, this is after God has created Eve, this 
At, at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We know this, right? Marriage is the joining of a man and a woman in a covenant relationship that's been instituted by God. Same-sex marriage is an oxymoron. It doesn't work. All right? It, if it is same-sex, it's not marriage. Marriage is the joining of opposite sexes. The way in which woman was created indicates that she is the man's divinely designed complement. So Adam was in a deep sleep. God took from his side. But here's the thing. The deep sleep was probably more like this trance, all right, or a numbing. And Adam is probably most likely a seeing woman literally being brought out of him, all right? It's like the Hebrew has this uh, connotation to it that he's being, like, sliced in half. <laughs> it's not just a rib. Like, here's the rib, and I'll make the rest. Like, he's in this deep sleep, this trance, can't feel anything, literally being cut in half, Woman's taken from him. So becoming one flesh is not just a reference to, to a sexual act. The sexual act may be the thing that rejoins them, but it is the rejoining that is the focus. When a man and a woman become one flesh, they are returning to their original state. All right? That's my stance on that. So, obviously, uh, I don't support homosexuality, but I have friends that are gay, and they know where I stand on it, okay? So... <laughs> but it's not my job, nor is it your job, to when you're evangelized, to hold up signs or to yell, hey, you're gay, so you're going to hell. No, everyone is a sinner, all right? So we're supposed to present the gospel to them in a gentle way, in a loving way. So, you know, th there's too many people out there that do that type of stuff, you know, and, and all that. It's not like, don't be surprised the world acts like the world. They're sinners, so you're a sinner too, so... Speak to them in the way that brought you to the gospel and to the faith, okay? So we get back to the text. <clears throat> Seeing that these city, cities serve as an example by undergoing a punishment then of this eternal fire, okay? They're destroyed forever. I'm not going to go into hell. We've gone through hell before. That's the lesson Jude's drawing from all these examples. The false teachers of his day were indulging in fleshly, sinful desires God has judgment prepared for them. So 5, 6, and 7 are these three examples, and they are saying that the enemies of the faith may be hard to see, but God knows who they are. I've covered that last week. They reject God's authority or any authority, and they have been exposed to great truth, great wonders of the faith, so they are like the beings that, that willingly left their proper place. They despise the majesty of God's glory in Christ, all right? So these people who have crept in, these creepers, they're also motivated by an indulgence in their flesh. They seek to defile it. Jude is going to give us the summary in verse 8. Yet in like manner, okay, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. All right. What are they doing here? Okay, so Jude, Jude's going to, he's giving us this character sketch of who they were and who they always are to a degree. Okay, so here we, 
we we hear how they come to their false views, which is in dreaming. Okay, so some of you are going to be familiar with this; others aren't. All right, but the dreaming refers to prophetic dreams. Prophetic dreams are visions. Okay, there's nothing wrong with having a dream at night and trying to wonder what it was about, or even pray and ask God for an answer for it if if you get into that. There's nothing wrong with that. But here, these men are using this time-honored practice of claiming wisdom from a heavenly source through a special revelation. Okay? Some of us are (laughs) familiar with this. Jude says these um, these teachers come in the same way. By dreaming. The starting point of these teachers is always a special revelation which they claim as their authority. Okay? That's what they're doing. And we know this is how God spoke to the prophets of the old. This is how he gave his revelation to Jeremiah, to Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Okay? And they saw visions. People today claim to have visions and have dreams. These men, then here in the text are led astray by relying on these dreams or these visions. And it could even be prophetic interpretation that they claim to have received about their dreams or their visions. So, mistakenly, they are following subjective experiences that they claim are from God. But it leads them to disobey God's written word. Uh, So... We had this on Facebook yesterday. How often do we hear the Lord told me to do this or do that? Right. <laughs> so that conversation going on on Facebook, I didn't comment on that. I just commented on how false teachers use these dreams or prophecies. But we do like God. God told me to or God told me so is used as much as the devil made me do it. Right. <laughs> it is today. Now. I'm not going to say the Lord through the Holy Spirit does not speak to us and, and, and tell, bring, recall something to our memory, like his word, his scripture. Um, nor am I going to say that, you know, I, I believe there's times when I've been driving and I've really thought, maybe I'll go down that way. In a way, I never go and I don't do it and then I get stuck in traffic. Perhaps that's God trying to say, I know you don't like being stuck in traffic and you're on a schedule. You should, I was going to tell you to go that way. I don't know. That happens to me a lot. <laughs> it shows me I should listen more. <laughs> okay, so I'm not going to get that hard line here. The Lord speaks to us through his word. He, he can recall things to us. In songs, or certain, he can impress on us somebody to to pray for or to give a phone call to, right? And that was all in that discussion. These things certainly happen, all right. I'm not denying that. It, but I can't help but also to just that or to say, if what the Lord supposedly told you then is against the Scripture, right? It, it's not the Lord. That's not the Lord. And if it lines up with Scripture, though, why would he specifically tell you what he's already told you or said to you in his word? <laughs> right? Sort of an observation. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying the, the recalling, but I've heard people say, one time I heard someone say, 
I was doubting, and Jesus told me to, you know, look at his nail-scarred hands. And then he showed me in Scripture that Thomas did that. It's like that person had never read Scripture and didn't even know it was there. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's just an observation. Okay, so dreaming then in these three following verbs, we're all in this present tense. It indicates it's not a passing practice, all right? This stuff is continual. It happens. So what you have here are men who claim to be teachers of God's word who are living in immorality. They're apostates, but they've morally forsaken the truth. They have upheld these visions or these dreams over the the word of God, saying this is what I'm supposed to do. God told me all that type of stuff. So relying on their dreams, they reject authority. And that is to act toward anything as though it were annulled. And it's translated in other passages as reject or bring to nothing or frustrate. All right. And they reject this authority, which means a mastery or rulers. So it ought not to be a surprise or seem like it's a coincidence that many false religions begin with the similar story. This is how they all start, right? A man who is visited by an angel of light. The angel then delivers new information or this new revelation. And then this new revelation supersedes anything that's been provided before. Right? This is how it all... The Mormon religion. It involves an angel of light delivering new revelation to supersede Christianity. Right? Islamic religion involves an angel of light delivering new revelation to supersede all other biblical revelation. And there's plenty more. It goes on and it goes on. Right? So we can know that these new revelations are always wrong because scripture itself tells us so. <laughs> that Jude earlier told us that the faith was once delivered and has been handed down. It was delivered by Christ and the apostles. It was handed down. Nothing has been lost. Right? Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Right? God saved His, his best revelation for last. And that revelation provide, uh, provided through his son that we received that's here. We already have, have the best that God had for us. Revealed in the life, revealed in the world, uh, words of Jesus, right? So no lesser angel is going to come along after Jesus appearing and give us something better than what he's given us already. It's not happening. So just like the angels of Noah's day and the men in Sodom... These men used their teaching as a cover for whatever, their lust, their self-centeredness, their arrogance, their pride, and all that. Immorality is always the calling card of the ungodly. Now, Paul, Paul makes the connection between those who hold to false teaching and to a lifestyle of, of sin in one form or another. And this is in 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 6. It says, if, if anyone teaches a different doctrine... Or does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and 
constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that God, godliness is a means of gain. All right, note, note, notice the listing or the list of things Paul say go hand in hand with advocating teaching that conflicts with Christ's instructions. Right? They create disputes. They provoke envy and strife. They will use abusive language. They encourage evil suspicions. And there is constant friction among themselves. All right? You don't have to look hard today to find these people who fit these descriptions. You can watch religious TV. <laughs> and you can see it. You can, um, you can attend some of the more prominent mega churches. And you'll see the showman or the woman that are performing in front of tens of thousands of people. Right? That's a broad brush stroke. I understand that. <laughs> but it's out there. They preach false messages on prosperity. They provoke envy among the faithful. They preach messages of inclusion or acceptance on controversial social questions instead of preaching the gospel. These are all these things that they do. And it's like we're not to do it. Or they work to pander to the unbelieving world. Some have even, I've heard, heard it myself, have even resorted to using foul language from the pulpit. These men are constantly competing with one another for a chance to fleece the biggest audience, seeing godliness as a means to personal gain. And secondly, they reject legitimate church authority. They reject uh, this church authority not just god's authority the church's authority in jude's day the false teachers arrived with heretical unorthodox teachings all right naturally they found themselves um, at odds with legitimate church leaders trying to protect their flocks but they rejected that authority right this is what paul meant when he said such men create disputes over various questions or words other people, elders, deacons, te other teachers, preachers, they reject all of those men's authority, right? They won't have it. They don't want to be under anybody. They don't want to any, you know, anything like that. You know, they, they want to do their own thing. Okay, so they, they create a smokescreen by twisting scripture, uh, contending with church leaders over uh, proper interpretation at times, too. We have that. And if, if the church respected and listened to its elders, it could be protected from the influence of these types of men, right? Too often, though, the pastors or other leaders are the youngest. They're the most impressionable with, that are within the church. So they're spiritually immature or at least inexperienced and ill-equipped to recognize and contend with these false teachers. Okay, so... You have all that, and we're not going to get into the, uh, the last part there, um, which is blaspheme the glorious ones, or in other, uh, other translations, it says revile angelic majesties, okay? So it's talking about glory, but we're not going to get it. This is where we'll pick up next week, okay? But what we need to know is we need to follow mature and knowledgeable leaders who stand by God's word, all right. They say this is inerrant. This is infallible. This is sufficient. All right. They stand by that. They lead the church away from all this other nonsense, which I've looked at. 
Okay, and we need congregations who are trained and equipped to follow those leaders when, when, when they issue warnings about the latest unbiblical fads or whatever it is, or no, no matter how popular, even morally, or whatever it is, you know, like you guys probably know some. I, I won't keep ranting on that stuff. But they need, we need that to be said. We need to be reminded of these things, and we all need each other to be equipped to be able to know this, these things as well. Discernment, testing the spirits, and all that. Okay, so, um, like I said, we'll pick up next week with that last part in verse 8, and we'll see if we can move a little a little further, maybe 9 and 10. We'll see. 